Well, good morning. What a great time with the Lord so far this morning, and that's going to continue as we open his word to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. As you turn to Daniel chapter 3, I want to remind you about our Church Center app. You hear about it a lot. There are a lot of things going on on that app. There's one special thing that is happening right now. It's the start of our Calvary Kids group. So if you are a parent, uh, grandparent maybe is interested in what's going on, if you join that group, you're going to have access to resources, study materials, songs that the kids sing in the back, and maybe you're a parent that's saying, how in the world do I do devotions with my kids? This would be a great start. You could use those resources, play the songs they're familiar with from Calvary Kids, and uh, you could just kind of team up. We want to team with you, but maybe you need a start in how to do that in your own family. This group on the Church Center app will give you some of those resources and let you know what is happening in our children's ministry. So don't forget to join that and have a look around our Church Center app for other great things. We are in Daniel, as you know, and we are going to start today by reading Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. We're going to stop right at kind of the climax of this story, right before we hit verse 19, where things get really hot in the furnace, okay? So you're going to have to wait till next week for that part. We're just talking about the intro this week. But verses 1 through 18, we are going to read from Daniel chapter 3. You're going to hear the name Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a lot today. So if I trip, if I stumble, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, we love to be able to honor God's word by standing. If you're not able to stand, would you direct your heart in reverence of reading God's word? But if you're able to stand, would you do so as we read Daniel 3, verses 1 through 18? King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, treasurers, and the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, and governors, the counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the pipe, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You may be seated. Amen indeed. So you remember last week in chapter 2, we had Daniel interpreting a dream for the king of this statue. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold in that particular dream. We don't know the exact time frame between the end of chapter 2 and the events of chapter 3. We know at minimum it was however long it took to build a statue that was 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide, which could have been quite a while. But it could have been years, it could have been days that they started the construction. So we don't know the exact time difference, but we do know that there was this huge statue that was constructed that was made entirely of gold. Nebuchadnezzar found out in this dream what it meant. He found out that there was going to be an eternal kingdom of God that would rule that there would be no man-made kingdom that would have any power, that it would be God's kingdom that had all of the power. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were appointed as leaders throughout all of Babylon. This was last week. The goal that I have for you today in from what we read and what we're going to study is that you will be challenged to live out your faith because, one, you know God deeper. You know Almighty God at a deeper level than when you came in here today, and it motivates you to live out your faith in your everyday life. That's what we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is the goal that we should have for ourselves today. So the one thing that we have to notice right away is this whole repeated sayings that we saw. We saw the same thing repeated many, many times. It's all about Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that set up this image. He's the one that demands worship. It's all about him. That's what we're seeing here in these 18 verses, except for the last two verses, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand firm in their faith. So as we look at verses 1 through 7, what we see here from King Nebuchadnezzar is that he demands worship and we see loyalties of people are tested. 
Now, as we go through this today, you're going to see some very similar, some similarities to how you interact in your everyday life with the world around you. Every day there are things that are demanding for your worship, and your loyalties to who you serve are tested. Every day, even right now, your loyalties are being tested because some of you are desperate to know the score of the Packer game. They're in London, they're playing right now. I could spoil it for you because I got an alert, okay? But I won't. Your loyalties are tested. Are you going to study God's word or are you going to let those inklings take you down further and further and pretty soon you're going to be streaming the game right here sitting in your seat, right? But every day we have things around us that demand our worship, that demand our loyalties, the king used peer pressure, high-pressure situations. He was demanding. He was threatening. He had grandeur and fanfare for this whole statue dedication. Satan uses all of those things in our lives. But what we see between chapter 2 and 3, somewhere Nebuchadnezzar switched his recognition of God. Remember, he said God is supreme over all of the other gods. That's how we ended chapter 2. But now Nebuchadnezzar responds with pride. He recognizes God, but now somewhere he switches, and it becomes all about himself. Self-promotion is strong. He recognized that, wait, it feels good for me to be recognized and put up on a pedestal. I'm not going to keep honoring this God that I met last week or that I recognized last week. I want myself to be glorified. And he responds to this whole thing with pride. He creates a physical idol to be worshipped. We saw a softening, softening of his heart last week. This week, we see that he is all about himself. In that statue last week that we studied, it was just a head of gold. And his response is prideful, and he says, no, a head of gold isn't good enough. I want the entire thing to be made out of gold. And it's this huge monument. It says 60 cubits by 6 cubits. 60 cubits is roughly 90 feet. So if you look at that wall and then you look at that wall, I believe that's 104 feet. So that statue laid down on the floor would be about as big as a basketball court. That's how tall it was. But six cubits is only about nine feet wide. So this thing was not a statue that was proportional to a human being. This was more like a monument that was way up in the sky, made entirely of gold. And it was all about the king made it. He wanted everyone to know that this was his doing and it was all about him. There's a similarity because in 1960, the president of Ghana had a large statue of himself built in front of the National House of Parliament. And actually on the side of that monument, there was an inscription and it said this, Seek ye first the political kingdom and all other things will be added unto you. It was all about himself, the president of Ghana. Nebuchadnezzar was all about himself in this moment. That monument, look what I did, and everyone's going to worship me or what I've done. You see, he had this pride that he responded to. Pride can be defined as an arrogant attitude that manifests itself as an independence from God. I don't need God because I have myself. I am my own God because I am so impressive. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. And it keeps people from having a proper view of God and properly fearing the Lord, something that Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn in the coming days. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Of course, if you're replacing God with self, man fails. So pride goes before destruction. God doesn't fail. And so if we worship him and keep our attention on him, he doesn't fail. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that. What we see from him is that he verbally demanded and he physically required worship. He had this whole event set up. Verse 1 tells us that it was in this location that was set apart just for that ceremony on the plains of Dura. In fact, today, if you excavate that area as they've done, you can find a rectangular mound that's about 20 feet high. It's about 46 feet at the base in a square, which looks exactly like a pedestal for a large monument. He had a set-apart location for this event. He had prominent people, the dignitaries of all of the land coming. In fact, all peoples and nations and languages are represented here. There's a specific time where the king says, we are all going to do this in unison. And so what he's looking for is national, political, and religious unity of everyone. But it's not for anything except his own glory. He even has music and this fanfare event. Do you know how boring a movie would be if it didn't have a soundtrack? Music provides this energy. Imagine a birthday party where you don't sing happy birthday. Blah, right? Of course you have to sing happy birthday. Music does something. And so Nebuchadnezzar is creating this huge event where there's high pressure and people are going to get caught up in the excitement of it. And what's the natural response? We're just going to go with what everyone does and we're going to bow down and worship. That's what he wants. And of course, to cap it all off, what ruthless king wouldn't end this whole thing with a death threat, right? If you don't do this, you'll die. That's what he says. So there's this huge pressure for the people to, to buckle and to say, you know what, I'm just going to do it. That's what he does. He responds with pride. He says, I am going to verbally and physically require you to worship. And what do we see? We see that the people obeyed in verse 7. Now, some of you may react and say, I am so disgusted by this. How could all of those people do such a thing? And you may even be comparing it to things that we've seen in our society in the last few years. Some of you may be disgusted that people followed some ordinances or recommendations from the government. You may compare it to this. You may have other things floating in your head of how, how could somebody do that and worship this king? He's disgusting. But I think if we took an honest evaluation, it would lead us to this conclusion. Very few, if any of us, have faced anything compared to what we just read. Where the most powerful ruler in the world looked right at you in your eyes and said, if you don't literally worship in front of me, I will murder you. How would you react? How have I reacted in other things that Satan has put in my way to tempt me? Have I had the power to stand firm in my faith, or have I buckled? We've all buckled. So what we see from here is not a disgusting group of people that we can sit from a higher position and say, how dare they? It's a group of people that we can say need a Savior just like we need a Savior. That's what we see in verse 7. But we move into verses 8 through 12, and what else we see is more pride, more 
sin nature fleshing itself out from the people because we see the peers, the other leaders of that area who are peers to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they demand judgment. And what we see in their response to the king or their conversation with the king is that they have a sin that is disguised as loyalty. Remember, they come to the king and they say these things. They say, well, scripture tells us they maliciously accused the Jews. They called them the Jews. They also, in verse 12, says, when they, when they tell the king, there are certain Jews who you have appointed who are doing something wrong. So what we see here is we have many things at play. We have jealousy because outsiders, foreigners who were originally taken captive and going to be killed, are now in prominent positions. And I don't think the homeboys like that too much, right? They want to see themselves higher up. They don't want to see foreigners higher up. So there's jealousy. They also had prejudice against the Jews. And that comes out as we see in the reading. But they're disguising their sin as loyalty to the king. Hey, king, we love you so much. We want to make sure that you're aware that there are some people who aren't being loyal. And they disguise it as like this whole friendly idea, but really they're self-serving. They want themselves to be recognized, just like the king wants himself to be recognized. And in our own life, sin has so many disguises. We're fooled a lot at the sin in our own lives. One of our elders always prays, Lord, please reveal to us the sin that we have in our own lives because sometimes we are so blind to it. It has many disguises, and Satan likes that. He deceives us. He lies. We see that in the life of these people who disguise their sin as loyalty to the king, but that loyalty was self-serving. Notice how they address the king. They come up to him and they say, O king, live forever. You think that hit Nebuchadnezzar in a real nice spot? Don't you think he loved to hear that? Here he is saying, this head of gold in this statue of my dream, that's not good enough. There won't be anyone greater than me ever. So I'm going to have this whole entire statue built that's all gold. See, I will live forever. My kingdom is forever. And then he has his, his lackeys come up to him and say, live forever. He's standing there even prouder than he was before. They recognize it. But they said it because they played into his pride so that they felt good about themselves and sin was self-serving. So they make that report to the king and Nebuchadnezzar responds in verses 13 to 15 by feeling insulted. Why does he feel insulted? Because there are three people out of however many people there are, hundreds, thousands, millions, I don't know how many people there are, but it's a huge crowd of people, and he's insulted because all of them but three bowed down to worship. So he feels insulted because his pride says that everybody must worship. I can't have anyone not looking to me. He embraces sin and when we embrace sin, it leads to more sin. Notice verse 13. It says what? Nebuchadnezzar was filled with furious rage. Nebuchadnezzar had a problem. 
In chapter 4, we're going to see that he lives in the wilderness like a beast. Some people say that he was crazy. Some people say that he had a mental disorder. But at minimum, here's what we know. We see that sin is abounding, and he is rejecting God working on his heart. We saw a softening of his heart last week, but how quickly he has changed, and it's become about himself, and now he's in a furious rage. One moment... He praised God, and the next he rejects God. He's a roller coaster. And the reason he's a roller coaster is because he isn't dwelling in the presence of God Almighty. He keeps getting in his own way. He can't decide if God is supreme or if Nebuchadnezzar is supreme. And so we see furious rage. This is why for us, the Holy Spirit, God's word, daily walking with Jesus Christ is so important. It has to be constant because we like to react. We like to be emotional, just like Nebuchadnezzar. So are we constantly growing towards Christ or are we a roller coaster up and down hoping that today goes good? Nebuchadnezzar was a roller coaster. So he embraced sin, which caused more sin. And sin is the rejection of God. Notice what he says in verse 15. This is scary, what he says in verse 15. Last week, we saw that he acknowledged God as supreme over every other God, but there's one other God that he didn't think of last week, and it was himself. Because look at verse 15. It says, who is the God who will deliver you? He looks at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knows they serve supreme God, the one he acknowledged as bigger than all of the other gods. And now Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, His sin is leading into more sin, and it's the rejection of God. He says, who's going to save you? In one moment, he discredited Almighty God in his own life. Among all the other gods he's considering, he's saying, none have the ability to rescue you three from my furnace, my punishment. Doesn't that sound like what Satan tries to tell us? None of you can rescue, nobody can rescue you from me. Don't look at Jesus. Don't look at that guy over there. He, you know, he wasn't so perfect. He lived a good life, but he can't be your savior. I'm the most powerful. Isn't that what Satan tries to tell us? And the king is saying the exact same thing. In one moment, he says, God has no power. I am the one with all of the power. How quickly sin breeds sin, produces more sin, and we become more and more comfortable with that sin in our lives. See, the truth of the matter is you can't sin and accept God's direction at the same time. You can't sit here right now with a sinful thought while you worship God. They can't coexist. Nebuchadnezzar we see this back and forth roller coaster. But I think it's real relatable to our everyday life because we suffer from the same idea. I can pick the moments where I want to honor God, but I want to still honor myself because at the end of the day, it's all about me. And that's a very scary thing, but we see it in Nebuchadnezzar. But now we get to the point where we all like to feel motivated, right? Which is a great story of faith because in verses 16 through 18, we see the faithful... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse and they remain true to what they're called to do. We see three things from them. We see rejection 
while being respectful. This is huge. This is real big. Notice what they say to the king. You know, earlier, the other people came to the king and said, Oh, king, live forever. And they toyed with him. And they basically worshipped him in their greeting. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say something similar with a respectful greeting. They say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, king. They don't say, live forever. They're not worshiping him, but they still maintain their respect for him. They never cross the line to worship, but they respect. How often do we throw out all respect when we disagree with someone? Think politically, okay? How often do you just disrespect political leaders that you can't stand and you're disgusted with their sin and so it gives you every right to just be ruthless with your words? That's not biblical. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to this king who stared them in the eye and said, I will murder you if you don't worship me. And they say, oh king, we disagree they didn't make it about him. They made it about God. We disagree with you because we want to worship our God. So they reject this whole idea of worship in a respectful way. In verses 16 and 17, we see that they take ownership of who they are without any excuse. They say, we have no need to answer you, king, in this matter because our God, whom we serve, is able to take care of us. They take ownership of who they are. They don't hide who they are to get out of a, of a violent end. They take ownership and they stand even stronger in the face of danger because they are children of God. There wasn't even a hint of an excuse. And I was really burdened with this this, this week because so often what we do is we stretch our understanding and what's allowed in a certain situation. What I mean by that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably could have, in our minds, internally said, you know, I know who I worship in my heart, so I'm just going to take a knee so that I don't stand out. Because that way I won't die, and then I can share about God to other people too. So that's a good reason, right? And some of us might say, yeah, yeah, that's a good reason. I would wrestle with that. I would too. That thought would cross my mind. Am I supposed to protect myself? So right away I should say, no, God does the protection. I'm secure in him. He's sovereign over all these things. But we would still wrestle with that idea, wouldn't we? If I live through this, I can tell people my story and it will glorify God more. And they, these three all said, no. Nope, because then it'll look like I'm loyal to the king and it won't look like I'm loyal to God. And what comes first? Ownership of who I am in God and proclaiming him. There was no excuse. They worship God alone. We see the third thing from them, which is faith in God and not in the circumstance. I want you to focus on verse 17 and 18. You see, their faith was not just in the belief that a miracle could happen, which is rescuing them from the fire. Their faith was in the sovereignty of God. Listen to what they say. They say to the king, God is able to rec rescue us. He will deliver us from your hand. What a powerful statement. But what's even more powerful is what comes next. They say, but if not. 
What are they doing right there? They're accepting their death in a furnace. If God doesn't rescue them, I will gladly die in that furnace because I must worship God alone. God can and is able to rescue me, but if he doesn't, he is sovereign over this whole thing. He is sovereign over my death because worshiping him is primary. So we see that their faith is not in the circumstance that they're involved in. Their faith is the God in God who is supreme and sovereign over all of those things. What a powerful statement. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. The idea is not that God will always protect his people from physical harm. He may do that, and he is certainly able to. But the central idea is that God's people should be obedient to him whatever the circumstance or whatever the consequences. So what they're saying is that even if God doesn't physically save us from this furnace, we can't and won't compromise our faith. They stood for who they served, which was God himself. Without excuse, they did it with respect. They pointed to God as the reason for their worship, not some crazy, ruthless king. They directed everything about them to glorify God. So in conclusion, I want to tell you a few things. Two things, actually. And this week, it is just two. And last week, I said it was three, and then each one had two. This one's just two points. Number one, who God is, the very nature and essence of God himself, demands our worship. Nebuchadnezzar demanded it physically, verbally. He yelled at them and said, you must worship me or you will die. But God, the very nature of who he is, demands our respect, our fear, and our worship. God doesn't yell at us like that ruthless king, but as the king, he deserves our worship. I want to read to you the entirety of of Psalm 145. We ended it with a few verses of the service last week. We introduced the service with a few verses from Psalm 145. I know it's 21 verses, but I want you to hear the tone of who God is from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goods and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works, in words, and kind in all his works. 
The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Do you see the greatness of God that by the very nature and essence of who he is, that's what demands our worship. Not some king laying out death threats on us, but a king who is love, who is goodness, who is every perfect thing, who is supreme over every outcome, who is involved in every circumstance. He is the one who is worthy of our praise. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they understood that, and they lived that out. The very second thing that I want you to see is that who God is in his nature, in his essence, it demands our loyalty. Now again, Nebuchadnezzar demanded loyalty with threats and fanfare and from a place of pride. But God Almighty, who he is, demands our loyalty because there's no one like our God. He's faithful and true. He desires goodness for each one of us because he is good. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He is faithful. He is true. And that demands our loyalty. God is the one whom we owe all of our worship and praise. Bowing down to him is a response to knowing who he truly is and what he's done for us. There's only one who can save us from the fiery furnace of hell, and that is Jesus Christ, God's Son. Being saved by Jesus Christ is not a forgettable event. He is not a forgettable person. He lives in the lives of believers, and our hearts, actions, and our words should proclaim his name just like what we saw in the face of death from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our faith needs to be expressed by standing firm in all circumstances because he's the one true God. There's no one like him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served the one true God and they knew that no thing, no one, no circumstance was worthy of praise. So for us, if you proclaim to serve the one true God... Are you constantly growing in your understanding of who he is? Are you constantly recognizing more and more how you need to worship him alone, where it's less of yourself and more of him, where it's more faith in action rather than in a circumstance that seems distasteful, uncomfortable? Are you daily rejecting more and more of this world because you recognize that it is Christ alone that you owe all of your worship. So today, can you make that stand? Can you make that proclamation that maybe it's not going to look like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
today, maybe you're not going to face death and you have to take this huge stand that's so eventful that it makes God's word like they did back then. But in the little things, are you going to go out to eat today and are you going to pray for your meal in public? Because praising the Lord for his many blessings is way better than buckling to the fear of what some stranger thinks of your weird family. What are the little things that you can say, I need to stand in my faith more and more every day and proclaim the greatest news to all of mankind that Jesus Christ alone saves. There is no furnace that he can't rescue us from. Satan is a liar and he cannot keep you because Jesus Christ keeps you if you accept him for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that you alone are God. It is all about you. King Nebuchadnezzar tried to make it all about him and there were three people out of all of those people who said no. We will not compromise. We will not buckle to fear. I pray today for the people that heard this message that we would stand firm and say the exact same thing to everything that we encounter. That we will stand firm and proclaim that you, God, are the only one worthy of worship. I pray that we would do that in the little things, in the big things, that we would have conversations about Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the many people in this place who model their faith in standing firm. Would you keep putting people in our paths who need Jesus Christ? Would you show us that we can always trust you because you are a sovereign God who helps us? Thank you for this time today. In Jesus' name we pray.